I want to mention is that we want to raise up our sisters and brothers who are suffering in Florida, uh, in the island of Puerto Rico from the two hurricanes that hit those places this last week. And uh, so I have this slide up. This is on the, the website for Lutheran Disaster Relief. And I encourage you, if you'd like to help in some way, this is a way that you can help, is by going to online to Lutheran Disaster Relief. When you get there, you'll see this picture, so that, that's why I put it up there, so you have a, a factor of legitimacy about where you're going on the web. And you can make a donation um, to help the people that are, being, um, that are suffering from the ravages of this hurricane. And the other thing that we can be doing as the people of God is praying for them and um, remembering them. And you know, so anything that we can do to help support them during this time. You know it's a bad hurricane when they, when they set aside the name Hurricane Ian will never be used again uh, because there's no hurricane like Hurricane Ian. And uh, if you've seen any of the pictures, the devastation is just unbelievable. Today we're going to focus on this portion of Philippians, this letter that Paul is writing. And in this letter, what he is writing about is really the challenge of being a Christian, of following Jesus, of living your life with Jesus at the center. You see, these early Christians were followers of the way. In the scriptures, you can even, in this very early books, you can hear references to the way. That's what the Christians were first called. And that was their chosen name. They received the derogatory name Christian from the Romans. And um, we have, in Christ-like fashion then, picked up the derogatory name and carried it as our own. So the way Christianity, Christians, what these early Christians did was that they followed in the way of Jesus. They were not just believers, but they were also followers. So I want to talk about how we can live a sustained Christian life. I know some of our confirmation youth are here this morning, and I want to tell you a little story about my pastor when I was growing up. We actually had to write papers, and we had to take tests, and we had to recite from memory the catechism. <clears throat> So I just want you to know that uh, it was, yeah, it was through your works that you were confirmed. You were saved by grace, but through your work you were confirmed. <laughs> oh, you said it could be worse, yeah. <laughs> so so the, uh, every paper that I wrote, um, you know, I, I did have help. My dad helped. My dad was really a spiritual mentor for, for me and for my brothers, and, uh, and he really helped helped us figure out what um, the pastor was asking about and, and encouraged us to write, you know, from our hearts what we were thinking, believing. And uh, after every paper that I received back, 
there'd be a comment about something that I had written. And then he used these two words. And I still remember it in red ink, press on, capital P, O-N, exclamation point, press on. You see, he knew that confirmation was not the end of my life as a Christian. The confirmation would become the beginning of my life. And so the admonition, the, the exhortation, the encouragement to press on was in everything that I submitted that he returned to me. And so when we talk about pressing on, we're talking about pressing on with the Christian life, even though at times it may be challenging. It may be difficult. And yet we press on. In verse 12, Paul tells us that Christ Jesus has made us his own. Let's read that verse together here. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. As followers of Jesus, Christ has made you his own. In your baptism, you became identified with Jesus. You were baptized into his death and you were baptized into his resurrection. And then as family, we gather together to encourage your belief, your believing. And not just the nuclear family, but maybe more importantly, the spiritual family, your brothers and sisters in Christ with whom you are hopefully in worship with every week. That we, as the family, are here to encourage your belief, to encourage your believing and your following of Jesus. See, God has already done this great work for you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And if God has achieved it for you, don't you want to experience the joy of actually possessing it, being a part of it, living it out? Now let's say someone gave you something that you desired, a special, a special car. I have a college friend who received on his 18th birthday a Porsche that his grandfather had bought him the year he was born, in 1959. And that was a gift. Now, it had been mothballed for 18 years. And do you suppose my friend was going to continue to mothball it? No, he wanted to drive it. He wanted to experience that Porsche. Let's say somebody gave you a house. Would you just kind of own it? And never go to it? Even if it was a fixer-upper, wouldn't you want to do something with the house? Go experience it? Challenge the challenges that the house brings to you? How can we make this kitchen larger? How can we make this 
room, seat 40 people instead of 20. You see, what Paul is writing about here is that we have been gifted this gift of salvation. But you can just kind of ignore it. You don't have to live with it. You don't have to possess it. But it's like my friend never driving his car. So let's press on. Let's press on, Paul says. Let's forget the past. And let's strain for what lies ahead. Now, why would you want to forget the past? I mean, Paul, Paul's talking about forgetting a past that comes with some privilege and honor. In chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, he talks about his past. He says, though I could have... Though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, a Hebrew, a member of the tribe of Benjamin, no less. If there was ever one, I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish laws. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Without fault. Forgetting the past. You see, what Paul was forgetting was all of the perfection, all of the honor, all of the privilege that came with his status. But he was also forgetting all of the sin, all of the persecution that he had participated in. He was forgetting that too. And he was going to look forward. You see, with Jesus, the past didn't matter. What mattered with Jesus was the future. How are you going to live now that you are part of this family of Christ. What honors have you received? I received a lot. I mean, 20 years ago, as a younger pastor, I was awarded a seat on the national board for the ELCA. I, uh, just this morning, Patty got the mail and I received uh, a letter of achievement for my years of service and ministry. And so I have all these honors that I could rely upon. But like Paul, I need to forget those because that's a part of the past. I mean, who cares that I was invited to preach at a Senate assembly? It doesn't make any difference. There's nothing of importance about that. What's important is looking forward to who we are going to be as the church, as the people of God. But this means that you can also forget your past, your past honors, your past sins. 
And if Paul can forget his past sins, I mean, of all things, he was the persecutor of the church. If Paul can forget about those things, you can forget about your sins, no matter how bad they are. So let's press on, like Paul says, and strive for what lies ahead. He describes that for us. Last week you heard it in verses 10 and 11. I want to know Christ, and I want to experience the power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection of the dead. You see, friends, that's our goal, to strive for the future, even with some suffering, because the goal is the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you've already achieved the goal, anybody here achieved the goal? If you have, that means you're dead. So, you know, you, if you're here, I, I'm presuming that you have not achieved the goal yet. And so what Paul is calling us to do is to continue to work towards that goal, experience it in its fullness, its highs and its lows, being assured, being consoled that in all things, Jesus is with you. So to strive for the future, even with some suffering in mind, will take a particular mindset. That's what Paul is saying. In verse 15, he says, let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. Literally, what it says from the Greek text is let all those who are spiritually mature be of one mind. Be of one mind. So where is your mind set upon? This is the mindset that Paul is talking about. Maturity means maintaining a like mind about the end of our lives, the resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection? I've encountered some people who don't believe in the resurrection, and I pity them. Do you believe in the resurrection? And so the resurrection is our goal. That is the focus. That is where we go. That is the promise. And so when we talk about this resurrection, from Paul's mindset, what he is saying is that maturity means maintaining a like mind of our lives. And the end of our life is the resurrection. Like Paul, we cannot presume that we have already reached the goal. After all, we're all sitting here. So let's get to work as a church and press on towards that goal of making Jesus Christ our own. So how do we do that? How do we share that message with the world? Well, one of the ways that we were taught to do this 20, 30 years ago was to grow the largest church that you could grow. And so there was the rise of the mega churches in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. In the 1970s, a mega church was designed, uh, was defined, excuse me, by 
a thousand people in worship on a Sunday. In the 80s, there were like 10 across the United States. Can you believe that? And then in the 90s, in the early 2000s, those numbers grew exponentially. Now, for us Lutherans, that was also one of the goals. Um, you know, when, when, when I was a younger pastor, I was actually uh, sent to training by the church to learn how to knock on doors, how to grow programs, how to expand the church and its programmatic ministry so that we could grow with more people. Even in the ELCA, megachurches were given status. Now, for Lutherans, to be a megachurch, you had to have over 750 in worship. You didn't have to hit the 1,000 number. It was unrealistic for Lutherans to actually think that they'd get 1,000 people in worship, I think. So I thought that this was the best way to ensure that the church would live for a long time. You know, a new covenant. How do we make sure that this church is going to live? Well, we'll just keep growing more and more people. This model was offered for us, and it was really a consumer model of the church. Let's put together lots of programs that will draw people in and keep them coming so that we can keep them connected to us. Now, the programs were programs about parenting, programs on marriage care, programs on how to uh, live a healthier life. And so they were all good programs. But how many of the programs really drove us back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, preparing us to live a life of suffering and of joy? They really didn't, these consumer models. And what happened so we begin to see some of these really big megachurches that we thought were going to last forever begin to die. Anybody ever remember the Crystal Cathedral? Now it belongs to the Catholic Diocese of L.A. So anybody ever hear of Community Church of Joy? Now it's an Assemblies of God church. So... To grow a church into a megachurch does not ensure its survival. Especially if we're more about the growth than we are about the gospel. So how do we communicate the gospel as a church? The old mantra was, if you build it, they will come. I'm kind of partial to that because I love the, the movie Field of Dreams. Anybody see that movie? You know, and I'm from Iowa, so it's got to be good if it comes from Iowa, right? And, and so the, the field of dreams, I, I was so enamored with this. And my brother texted me this summer. My brothers and I have a text thread that we usually talk sports, but other stuff too. But um, sports will always draw us together. And um, my brother, who lives in Iowa, was talking about the game that was being played at the field of dreams. There was an actual MLB game. They have one or two every year. And I said, are you there? And he laughed. He goes, no. I said, well, why not? He says, because the tickets are over $1,500 a ticket. <laughs> 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 
If you build it, they will come. 8,000 of them anyhow. And they'll pay over $1,400 a ticket for it. So the mindset in our church, in all churches, was let's find ways to grow fast. Let's find ways to really be a big church. Because once we're big, then nothing can get in the way of us. Anybody ever hear of Mars Hill? They got a new start down here in South Scottsdale. You see, just because you build the largest church doesn't mean that it's going to survive. But if you begin to build a church built upon discipleship and not upon consumerism, then that church will grow and it will thrive. It may not grow numbers like this, but it'll begin to grow numbers like this. And the church begins to become the church in the world. So my mindset had to change. I needed to change from a consumer model of church to a Jesus model. We exchanged our programs for discipleship and we saw people leave the place in droves. I realized that if we wanted to be a church that survived, that not survived, that thrived, if we wanted to be a church that thrived, it would, be in, it would not depend upon the quality of our programs, but it would depend upon the quality of our disciples. So how are we doing, disciples? Who has God called you to be? You're free to be that person. You're free to follow Jesus Christ. Who has God called you to be? Now, if Paul calls us to take a particular mindset, to take on a particular mindset, a kingdom mindset, how can we achieve that? Paul tells us how to achieve it in four ways. The first thing that Paul does is he continually draws us back to the gospel, to the scripture, to Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. That means that we cannot be afraid of suffering. We can't. We cannot be afraid of suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we work towards communal discernment. <laughs> that sounds like something prohibited, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> communal discernment. Uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul talks about this communal discernment. This is what he says. Then make me truly happy. To, he's saying this to the Philippians, to the church there. Make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and one purpose. You see, that is the second part of what Paul calls us to. Focused on the gospel, working together, being of one heart and one mind. We just revisited our congregational values this past spring and summer. And we sent out an email asking everybody in the congregation to respond to those values. And so it was okay turnout, like 35 or 40 responses. It wasn't huge, but kind of gave us a, a good statistical number to work with. And from that, we isolated or 
focused on six values that we have agreed upon as a congregation. This is communal discernment. Next, we agree that we will suffer together for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, entering into suffering is not something that's really popular. I mean, we're not going to gain many followers from instant uh, Instagram. Is that what they call it? We're not going to gain many followers from Instagram because we're the church that's advertising, hey, come and join us in our suffering. But what does it mean to suffer for Christ? Here's some of the ways. Taking the lead in caring for the sick. You know, uh, we just went through this horrific pandemic, and I did some research in the early days of the pandemic, not on this one, but on previous ones. And there was a couple that hit during the first and second centuries. And uh, was, what was interesting was to see the response of the early church. So in, in the first century, this, this horrific pandemic hit the Roman Empire. And all the people that had means, they actually had um, uh, villas out in the countryside. So they, they all moved outside of the city to their country villa and lived there away from the plague. Meanwhile, everyone else that didn't have a country villa had nowhere else to go, so they remained in the city. Now the Christians, some were wealthy, some were very poor, it was a big variety. Guess what the Christians did? They went and lived in the city, and they took care of the sick, and the bodies were piling up, and so they would collect the bodies and give them a proper burial. And there's a statistician, a sociologist of religion, I don't understand math very well, which makes it unreal to think that I have a daughter who does, it's obviously from my wife. Um, but in this mathematical formula, what this sociologist figured out was that the rate of death amongst the Christians living in the city was actually much lower than the rate of death of everyone else. So Christians survived more, lived longer because of their faith, because of their focus on being suffering servants for Jesus. It means taking the lead in caring for the addicted, for the grieving. It means identifying with the oppressed, comforting the brokenhearted, forgiving the sinners. Lastly, lastly, we trust God to form us into his likeness. We trust God to form us into his likeness. Now, we've had this challenge of living our lives and experiencing the fullness of Christ. And guess what? When you get to the goal, the reason you're going to get there is because Jesus gets you there. You're not going to achieve anything on your own. Any suffering that you can enter into, you will enter into because of Christ.
not because of you. You see, what Paul is telling us here is that we want to be working towards that goal of the resurrection. And as we work towards that goal, maybe sometimes we can begin to think that we're helping God. We're helping Jesus get us there. But that's not the case. That is not the case. Jesus will get you there. So you need to trust in God, that God will form you into the likeness of his son. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be imitators of Jesus. Paul then kind of concludes by saying, now that we have a clear understanding of my mindset, which comes from Jesus' mindset, let's remember that we are citizens in heaven. Jesus is in heaven. But it's not just in heaven that Jesus is. Jesus is also here on earth because the kingdom of heaven is coming into the kingdom of the earth. And this is where the early church was so radical. I loved it. Because, you know, they keyed in on a couple of themes that really got them into trouble. This is why they went to prison. This is why they were crucified, hung upside down. This is why they suffered and died. Because they were bold enough to give their allegiance to one person. One person. You see, in the Romans, uh, in the Roman era, I was like, hey, we got to be kind. We want to respect everybody's gods. So we're all going to believe in everybody's gods, okay? And, and so there was this, that's what paganism is. And, and so uh, what was happening is that these Christians were saying, um, there's just one. And guess what? You know, when they referred to the emperor in the Roman Empire, they always referred to him not as the emperor, as Lord. When you saw him drive by, you saw your Lord go by in the chariot. And so the Lord was your emperor. And there were also some saviors. There's a couple in particular that were very popular. One was named Augustus, remember Augustus Caesar? Upon his death, he was declared a divine savior. You could call upon him and he would save your life. And then there was Claudius, who was another one. And then there were more. And so, what did the Christians refer to Jesus as? As their Lord and Savior. One. No others. One. Are we ready to suffer for our beliefs, for our faith in Jesus Christ? It might, it might impact your bottom line, just giving you a heads up here. It will probably make both political parties hate you. Are we ready to take on suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you prepared to suffer with those who suffer? If so, let's stand firm and let's press on. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for the promises that we have received from your son Jesus through his death and resurrection. Help us to live our faith out fully.
even though it's already completed through your son Jesus, help us to experience it like a new Porsche. <laughs> help us to experience it like a fixer-upper. Help us to, to know that we are called into your world to share your love and your grace, to share the wealth, to share the compassion, to share the time, all of these things, Lord. Help us to suffer with those who suffer so that we can more closely identify with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Steve. That was a good one, brother. Amen? Amen. It was good.